Welcome back to Behind the Wealth. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm here with Elias Randall. And we're going to talk today about the everyday money lessons that you can learn from billionaires. Uh, we, we thought this would be a really fun show. Look at the wealthiest people in America. Take some tidbits from how they've created their success, how they hold on to their wealth. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it, Elias. Yeah. So you know what? What's fun for me to think about being a billionaire? It's actually well, it's fun but discouraging because only like less than one percent of the population is a billionaire. So it's kind of fun to think about, but the reality is I'm never going to be one. But what do you do with a billion? I mean, if you think about it, what do you do with a billion dollars other than you know start something probably philanthropic? But yeah, you you have the statistic here that point zero 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 two percent of the population ever becomes a billionaire. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, it's fun to think about, but the likelihood's not likely. Yeah, it's very unrealistic. But there are probably some, there's probably some practical uh, wisdom in some of the things that they say, and we'll go through. We have several quotes from different billionaires um, from around the world. So I guess we'll get started with uh, Warren Buffett. And the quote we found was, rule one is don't lose money. And rule two is to ref, refer to uh, rule one. So what uh, So what do you make of that? Pretty simple. Well, you know, let's just think about who Warren Buffett is for a minute. He's probably one of the most well-known investors um, of all time. He He's a common name in probably every household in America. Whether or not you're an investor, if you say Warren Buffett, you know who he is probably. Yeah. Most people consume his products or products that his company owns, Dairy Queen, Coca-Cola, um, a lot of major companies. Um, but but I think when he says this, you have to think about it in a different light because it's obvious. Like We wouldn't invest in something if we were going to lose money. But what he's really saying, in my opinion, is that invest in things we know, number one. But number two, if we give things time to work itself out, then arguably we're removing some of the risk of losing money from it. If, if you look over historical periods of time, the longer you let things work and invest, the likelihood goes up that you can have a positive return. And, and it's reflected, and we went back literally right before the show and said, what's the worst five-year, 10-year, 15-year, and 20-year return for the S&P 500? Okay, in the worst five year return that I could find was minus 6.6% for, for five years. And that was ending in February of 09. Now, full disclosure, I'm not sure that data is completely updated through COVID. You know, if you looked at the end of March 2020, it could be different. But this is just for general, you know, reasoning. We'll, we'll just use this data. The worst 10 year return was minus 3%. Right, so it's getting better. Minus six, minus three. Right. The worst, the worst fifteen-year return was a positive three point seven, and the worst twenty-year was a positive six point four. So, so what you start to think about is if people have a really good long-term vision and they keep their eye on the ball and they are investing for the long term and not speculating or gambling, the odds that they'll have a positive return goes up. And a lot of people will start to talk about, well, you know, 20 years is a long time. Well, arguably, most people listening to listening or watching this show have a 20-year time horizon. And, and I hear this a lot when people get ready to retire. They say, hey, well, I'm retiring next year, so I need to 
kind of get into this protectionism mode of their money when arguably they may spend as much time in retirement as they did working. They could have a 25 or a 30 year time horizon in retirement. Yeah. Yeah, they could. And, you know, we just highlighted the worst performance in those time periods. Um, and we didn't even talk about the best. And then the other thing to remind people, so I know there's a lot of clickbait, especially when it comes to Warren Buffett out there on the internet because he has been such a successful investor. But Warren Buffett is a value investor. I don't think he's a market timer. Um, I mean, do you have any insight into that? Or the, I guess the difference between value investing and trying to time the market, or at least his approach? He has a very, very disciplined approach to how he decides when and what to buy, and he sticks to its approach. And they kind of came to light even in 2020 during COVID. A lot of people expected Warren Buffett to go make these massive purchases like he did in 2009. And that didn't happen. And and I obviously don't know the rationale or what people are thinking behind the scenes, but my guess is it did not fit his strict investment criteria to be purchased or bought or sold or whatever the rationale may be. Right, right. So he probably is a great example of someone who doesn't make knee-jerk reactions. When he was younger in his investing career, he had a plan and he developed an investment philosophy that worked for him. And he's been very successful. And over the years, he's been very rigid about sticking to it. Yeah, I, th I think what it really goes down to is when you're buying or investing or, or doing anything with your money, that's has some risk of loss to it, right? Because there's investments that don't have risk of loss, CDs, bank accounts, some of those things don't have risk of loss. But if it does have risk of loss, if you're not comfortable owning it for 10 years, you probably should think twice about buying it. Because arguably at that point, it's becoming speculation for you versus part of a long-term um, investment process or goal. Right. And there's a distinct difference between speculating and investing. To me, speculation is, well, I'm going to buy this at X price because I think it's going to appreciate to this price and then I'm going to sell. Well, that to me, that's a speculative thing to do where I think of investing as you're investing dollars probably on a systematic basis into a portfolio that is going to help you achieve success in the long term. Um, but to circle back to his first rule, don't lose, um, and rule two, refer to rule one, um, you know, don't lose money. So what does that actually mean? Because we know the stock market will have price fluctuation. And this year was a great example of that. Back in the spring, uh, when COVID started, I think the market was down 35%, maybe a little bit more at one time. And really, the only losers would have been people who sold while their investment accounts were down. And had you stuck it out, you were, you were rewarded this year because now it's the year's almost over and we're back to all-time highs. So relatively unscathed as, um, you know, in the big picture of things. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it, it goes back to the people that were able to execute that strategy that you just talked about and not make the knee-jerk reaction. Most of them had some kind of a goal, a financial plan. They weren't just randomly buying and selling because they thought today it was a good idea to buy something. They, right. they had a well-thought-out, well-crafted plan to help them stay the course. Or they also just understood that markets ebb and flow. 
right? Correct. And and I think the one takeaway from 2009 is there were a lot of investors who went to cash in 2009 and missed out on all of this. And I think that happened recently enough that people were able to say, hey, this is probably like 2009. We'll just wait to for this to come back because people have seen that happen. Um, so maybe they had still had a little bit of what we call recency bias and why they didn't make the knee jerk reaction to go ahead and say, hey, let's let's pull out of this and you know, sit this COVID thing out because it was a pretty scary time and it was pretty unknown and we didn't really know what was gonna happen. So the next person we're gonna talk about, he is the second richest person in the world. He's worth $109.3 billion the notorious Bill Gates. And we've actually heard a lot about Bill Gates this year because he uh, he, he does some stuff with infectious disease research. Um, but his most famous quote is, you can achieve amazing progress if you set a clear goal and find a measure that will drive progress towards that goal. And when I read that, I thought about a lot of the things that we talk about with people on how to become financially successful, how to execute either a pre-retirement strategy or a post-retirement strategy. And really, if I sum that up in the financial world, it says establish a financial plan, that's the plan, and a personal fair rate of return or a personal benchmark. Because what it allows you to do is drown out all the noise associated um, with what's going on around you. I mean, whenever we deal with money, the most successful people have a clear goal in mind. So whether that's I'm saving for college, I'm saving for retirement, I'm saving for a new house, whatever it is, if we have a clear goal, we then can go match investments or investment strategies with some expected rate of return or a benchmark. Right, right. And what I, so what, what I really enjoy about our process and the way we do things is client goals really dictate the financial plan. Um, you know, so our process isn't look at what we can do in the investment world, because I think at least with our firm investing is kind of the easy part of our job, but helping people come to realistic expectations and then also having goals for themselves. Um, that's probably the harder part. And then managing those goals and expectations. Um, so, you know, what Bill Gates is talking about, that's exactly what we do through our process is we develop a financial plan that is focused on the goals. And then the plan helps us make the investment allocation, which really, once we've done all that other work, that part's kind of easy, really, when you think about it. Yeah. And I think the cool thing about having a goal if you don't have a goal, all that really matters then and all anybody ever looks at are the returns. And the question then becomes, are those returns relevant to your goal or not, right? If we have a goal and, and we run a financial plan or put together a financial strategy for somebody and says, hey, we need to make on average six and a half percent per year to be successful. Well, when the market does 12 and you make eight, are you gonna be unhappy? Right? You if your goal be. is six, yeah, right? You shouldn't be. You and, should be happy. And with it that. comes back to relative returns, right? The goal right. is not to massively outperform the market or massively underperform the market. It's to get a relative return to the market for the amount of risk that we're taking. Um, so I think what's really cool about having a goal and kind of building that financial plan is that now we can say, hey, we need to make X amount per year to be successful. And if we do, then we can forget about all the other stuff. Right. And also forget about 
Well, you know, one thing people like to do is kind of track their progress compared to the S&P 500, which, you know, it's just an index that measures the, you know, the 500 largest companies in the country. Um, but when you have goals and you're trying to reach relative returns, you can focus on, okay, I'm achieving my goals and achieving the lifestyle I want to have. And, and like you said, then you can drown out the noise of all these other things and not to get too far in the weeds, but sometimes people are exposing themselves to too much risk or maybe they don't have enough risk. But the important things is that all of those things are aligned. So then your financial plan is working for you. Well, and you made a really good point, either too much or too little. And a lot of times I run into people that are actually very conservative. And once we do the financial plan, they're not as conservative as we thought. They just didn't know what they needed to do to be successful. So the default option was just to be ultra conservative because right. that's not a scary world. So the education of having that plan put together and why we would own certain investments you know, really comes to light. The other thing it really does is helps quantify your decision-making process. Um, we have a note here, it's really good, but you know, if you didn't have a plan and you had an opinion on the election and your opinion was, well, if Biden wins, the market's gonna go down, you would have been exactly wrong, right? right? And we have this conversation with people that, you know, who the president is doesn't matter as much as fiscal policy. and. And all the people that were concerned about, and it's okay to be concerned, it's okay to be worried, but people that were worried about, oh, Biden wins, the market's going down. Well, so far that hasn't happened. Um, and if you went to cash, you missed out on some really nice gains since November the 4th. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, by ha having the plan really helps you stay away from, hey, should I make a change because of what's going on in my environment today? Right, and with the election there was, so during, I think it was the second debate, um, Donald Trump even said, if Joe Biden wins, markets will tank. I am certain of that. And that's just another, that's another example of someone being wrong. Now he has a lot of supporters and a lot of followers. So there were probably a lot of people who took that as like objective market analysis, but we've talked about before and we'll probably <laughs> talk about moving forward. Um, people's people's opinions, especially if they're looking at maybe a disappointing outcome are really irrelevant to how the market will perform. Yeah. And if everybody knew, they wouldn't need to tell us about it. It'd be easy. It'd be easy. And um, we'd probably just be investing our own money. We wouldn't be helping other people do it. Exactly. So let's go on to the actual richest person in the world. Um, when we created this, he was the richest person. I don't know if he still is because it fluctuates. Um, but Jeff Bezos worth a whopping $166.3 billion. I'm sure that's actually changed since we put this out. The, the quote that I like most from Jeff Bezos is, I think you can foresee some things that will change in the next 10 years. The bigger question is what's not going to change in the next 10 years. And Jeff Bezos, going back and doing some research, and there's some really neat things I, I learned about Jeff Bezos, but... Um, he used that concept when developing his business plan. Well, if we take tidbits away from that, we should maybe be using that in our own financial plans. And it kind of causes me to think, hey, are there things we can add to make things better? Um, but what we do have is we have historical data that we can lean on and say, hey, this has happened in the past. It may not happen in the future, but it makes it much more likely. What are your thoughts on you know, that, that kind of quote from 
Jeff Bezos. Yeah, so I think it's kind of kind of what he's getting at is control what you can control. So we can't control the future. We can't control short-term fluctuations in the market. But this isn't a prediction of performance, but I am certain over the next 10 years the market will be higher than it is today. Now how we get there, there's going to be ebbs and flows. We might have um, huge run-ups on certain days, and we might have um, big negative days. But, you know, for me, I think we can't control that, right, because we don't have a crystal ball. But what we can control is um, our behavior so we can decide, well, we're not going to let these short-term fluctuations um, dictate our decisions. And we can, can we can control staying focused on what is important. That's good takeaway, Elias. You know, the one thing that nobody knows is actually what the market's going to do. And we we ran into this a lot the last probably 10 months, I would say. People, is now a good time to buy? Is now a good time to sell? And trying to go through that rat race just historically long-term doesn't work. People can't time the market. In fact, I got a very kind of rewarding phone call not too long ago. And... He called me and he, what did he call me? Obi-Wan Kenobi? The Obi-Wan Kenobi of financial planning. Yeah. And it was kind of, you know, that's a compliment if you're a Star Wars, which I'm not a Star Wars guy, but Elias is like, that's the greatest compliment of all time. That's and a very high compliment from what, a Star Wars <laughs> follower. When I first met this individual, um, we had the discussion. He had interviewed with a couple of very large investment companies that are nationally known. And they told him how they would get them out of the market and they would get them back in the market. And I looked at him right in the eye and said, I, I can't do that. I'm not good enough to time the market. I said, and neither are they, because here's the question. And this is what I asked. If you get out of the market, which is the easiest thing to do, hitting the sell buttons easy. I said, when will you get back in? When it goes down 10%? Probably not because you probably think it's gonna go down further. Well, what happens if it goes up 15%? Are you going to get back in? Probably not, because you're going to feel the recency of losing out on the 15%. Well, back to the story, he had a friend of his who got out of the Dow, got out when the Dow was 26,000. And he was having dinner with this individual and his friend said, man, I just don't know when I'm going to get back in. And he started chuckling. And the friend goes, well, what are you chuckling about? He goes, we had this exact conversation with my financial advisor. And he said, my financial advisor told me we won't know when to get back in. And it was the same thing he was struggling with because he got out when the market was at 26. When we, when my client had called me and shared this with me, the market was at about 28,000. Right. My guess is he's still not back in the market. And now are you going to get back in the market when it's at 29,000 in the Dow? Yeah, it's, the, it's like the trader's dilemma or the timer's dilemma is when is enough enough and then oh, I missed out, so now it's not a good time. But, and people are probably gonna get tired of hearing us say this, but time in the market is a much greater indicator of success than timing the market. Absolutely. And um, someone the other day on financial news I was watching, he said, well, the best time to invest was yesterday, so your second best <laughs> opportunity is today. And I thought, you know, that's, that's another good, simple, straight to the point piece of advice that people should be listening to. Well, and you know what, if you say, hey, I've got 10, 15, 20 years to invest this money, the price today doesn't matter. Right. Most of the time, right? right. That's not a guarantee most of the time, so. Right, because that's probably something that's 
not going to change as markets will continue to go up in the long term. So I've had my greatest compliment of the year, the Obi-Wan Kenobi financial advisor. That's probably the best compliment for the last few years, <laughs> I would imagine. It still doesn't get, it still doesn't get you to a billion dollars though. No, no, you're not no. The next billionaire we're going to talk about is Jim Simmons. Uh, he's worth $21.6 billion. He's actually a mathematician by trade, and he founded Renaissance Technologies, which is a large um, investment company slash hedge fund. Uh, and, and he actually has a great story to go with why he has this quote. But his quote is, it is important to understand what you are invested in, and if you don't, get out. And the backdrop to this story is, when Jim talked about this, he had actually invested money in Bernie Madoff's fund. And, and over time, he started to question how is he able to do this? And because he's a mathematician, he started to put the math behind it. And what he found is that 80% of the returns couldn't be accounted for. So he exited the fund because he didn't know how it could happen. And it goes back to the old story. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And for most people, you know, you don't have to understand the, the trading strategies, but you know, I, I listen to Dave Ramsey sometimes and he talks about spouses and wives in general. And if they have a gut feeling about something, you kind of follow that. Well, if you have a gut feeling about something that is just not right, it might not be right. And it's okay to cut bait. Um, so we just thought this was a really good goal because people sometimes buy things or get invested into things or even have a financial plan that they don't understand. And, and inherently, I believe that the majority of financial advisors or wealth consultants or investment advisors out there are really out there to help and educate people. The days of 20 years ago where, hey, give me your hottest stock pick. You know, my, my cousin used to host um, here locally a show with a, with a local stock advisor, and they would actually be talking about stock picks over the radio. You know, this is 1999, 2000 when the tech bubble was happening. The days of picking the hot individual stock for somebody's over and we're here to educate. So if somebody, if you're working with somebody or you have a financial plan that you're not sure about, the easiest thing to do is go have it redone, get a second opinion. But if you don't understand what you're invested in, it's okay to get out. Yeah, it is. And investing can be as simple as just understanding your time horizon, understanding your risk tolerance, um, and then and also just understanding that you don't need to beat the market. And for any, I guess, any do-it-yourselfer investors listening to the show, um, you don't need to understand derivative trading strategies or the most complicated ways to make money. You know, if you're sub 35, you're in the accumulation stage. You don't need to overcomplicate this. No. Right. You know, pick out funds that have good track histories, whether that's an index or an actively managed fund. Check out the expenses and some of the other stuff or call a financial advisor and just get an opinion. I mean, that's what we're here for. We're here to help people. If you're looking for help with some of this stuff, if you don't have a financial plan or you, you just need a little help, you can get us at btwellshow.com. That's the website. Um, we're at, you know, we're always more than happy to help anybody who wants to be helped. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I guess I'll add another thing, cause there are, I guess out there with 
I guess, um, financial news or investing news, there's sometimes there's an opinion that working with an advisor is too costly. Now, we don't do this work for free, but I would challenge anyone, show me someone who started working with an advisor when they're in their 20s and when they were in their 60s, they were unsuccessful at, yeah. towards their financial goals. That's actually a really good point because if you get to your financial goals and you accomplish what you do, how much is that actually worth? Could you quantify that in dollars? I, that would actually be very hard to say, well, you took me at 25 years old and at 55, my goal is to retire. And I did that with 100% or 99% certainty. How much would somebody actually be willing to pay over their lifetime to get to that point? I would be willing to bet the fees that we make over their lifetime working with us is not as high as what they would value that. Like probably. if they were just to look at it and say, here's a fair value for that. Yeah. We're probably cheaper than that. I mean, it's actually unquantifiable. It's like Visa, yeah. right? Right. <laughs> What's the Visa commercial? I don't know which one. It's priceless. I mean, if you think oh. about it, like, think about the Visa commercials they used to run, like, oh, a $12 hot dog at the game, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, $30, a $42 catcher's mitt, and, you know, a weekend with your kids, priceless. Well, I'd argue that if you start with an, working with an advisor at 25 or 30 and got yourself to 60 and did it with dignity and how you wanted to, it's probably priceless. Yeah, probably. I just came up with that out of the blue. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> that was, that was good. Um, <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's move on to the next one. And honestly, this is, he's probably maybe even more well-known than Warren Buffett, just because he's constantly in the news. He's a master innovator, probably one of the most innovative people we've seen in a very long time, but Elon Musk. Yeah. And uh, so we, his net worth, we have here 46.2 billion. That was July 2020, he might be richer than that right now with the way uh, I'm the sure Tesla stock price has I been tracking. I saw yesterday is when they actually put um, Tesla into the S&P 500 and his net worth went up $15 billion in a day. So I'm guessing it is higher than that. Um, That'd be a fun day. It would be a terrific day. <laughs> but, you know, he had a, he has a great quote, too. And his is more kind of inspiring. But there have to be reasons that you get up in the morning and want to live. Why do you want to live? What's the point? What inspires you? And what do you love about your future? Yeah. And for I guess for me, the simple answer when I think about those things is um, in, in regards to my financial plan. For me, it's lifestyle. Because that's kind of how I've defined all my financial planning goals is there's a certain lifestyle I want, a certain lifestyle I want to maintain. And I don't see that ever changing. Um, you know, so that excites me, at least as far as my financial planning is concerned. But, you know, there's other things people could be excited about. Maybe one of something that excites you is paying for a child of yours to go to college. Or maybe something could excite you that, uh, when I retire, I want to celebrate by taking a big vacation. Or maybe you're in the accumulation phase right now and you're doing a good job with your saving and you're on track and you want to splurge and spend a bunch of money to go on a vacation. You know, those all those type of things excite people. And th those are all things that we can help with through a financial plan. We can help determine how to achieve those goals. Yeah, and you know, we, we coined this phrase probably a couple of years ago and after a meeting with a client, it, this came to me, but you know, it's not always just a financial plan, it's really more of a financial decision tree, right? If you wanna buy a vacation house, 
how does that affect your long-time financial future? If you want to, you know, quantify any financial decision, it can be done through a financial plan that, that, that uses goals-based decision planning. But when I think of this quote, it takes me back to the show we did with Jonas not too long ago and about his book, A No-Budget Lifestyle. And so many people spend so much time my cable bill's $36 and my cell phone's $81. They're spending all of this time doing that. That How is that anyway inspiring? Where if they went out and said, hey, I want to take a trip to Florida with my kids, how do I figure out how to make that happen? That's inspiring. It wants to make you get up. But when all you do is spend all your time budgeting, scrimping, saving as much as possible, well, that doesn't inspire people. It's time to take a different approach. And that was the whole emphasis of Jonas's book. It wasn't that to just go waste money. It was to design your spending habits around what your goals are and what makes you excited to get up each and every single day. Yeah. And for, so, and for the people listening to the show, just one kind of simple idea. If you can just have a paradigm shift from like having a negative connotation towards your money where maybe you're trying to budget, but you feel like it's never working out. Or you, um, actually I had a conversation with a young guy a while back where he's told me, he goes, you know, if I just quit and he's, I think 24, 25 years old. And he goes, if I could just quit going out on the weekends, I could stick to my budget. And I said, well, what about this? What if you put your lifestyle in your budget and then you quit and then you quit feeling bad about going out on the weekends. And I asked him, I go, how realistic is it that you're going to stop going to happy hour on Friday and you're going to stop going out on Saturday nights? You're 25 and you're single. It's, it's not, not going to happen. No, that, that's a super good point because what he's not doing is he's not living, he's not building a no budget lifestyle. He's saying, well, I could get rid of this. Well, maybe if he listed in priority what was important to him, that probably is at the top of the list. Right next yes. to like food and shelter, that's probably high in the list. So why not put that in there and then figure out the other place to save? Maybe he could say, well, because I like to go out, maybe I don't need 372 cable TV channels, or maybe I don't need the NFL ticket or those other things he could cut out of his kind of spending habit because he, he's, he's building his budget around his lifestyle. It's like I read all the time, well, the latte is the reason you won't retire. Oh, you buy a latte every day, you won't be able, that's not the reason. The reason yeah. most people can't retire is because they don't put a strategy together and they don't pay themselves first and start saving money. So that, that's a really good takeaway from, in, from Elon Musk. When I first read it, I'm like, what does this have to do anything with money? Like, it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with money, but you shouldn't be inspired every day to work with your money, not drug down. So, um, all right, let's move on to the next one. He is very famous. I would say almost every single person, not every single person, but a vast majority of the people use his technology every single day. He's worth 85.4 billion, Mark Zuckerberg. And he's famously known for wearing the hoodie. Yeah. And now uh, he's getting more famous for spying on everyone on Facebook. <laughs> which I get a kick out of because I don't really feel like it's spying if you're just offering the information. I actually think he knows more about me than I know about myself. He probably which is does. A, which is a little scary. So if anybody, if anybody's actually watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix right now, it will spook you out a little bit as to how much 
they know about you. I mean, I watch them like, I looked at my phone, how much screen time am I spending every day? I'm like, that, that's maybe too much. Like, you'll just feel differently for a couple of weeks and then you're gonna go back to your old habits. But, you know, his, his famous quote is, the biggest risk is not taking any risk. And this actually is very, very, very relevant to your money. And I'm not talking about, hey, I bought the S&P 500, but I need to go buy this, you know, really high risk stock. That's not what I'm talking about. But too many people that we run into run inflationary risk. And, and what I mean by that is they have investments that aren't even keeping up with inflation, i.e. bank accounts, certificates of, certificates of deposits, some bonds that are out there. And that is actually more of a risk to some portfolios. Um, for some people than anything else out there. And I think specifically with people that are reliant typically upon two income streams. So, you know, if you think about retirement assets, people have, they have social security, 401k, and then there's a percentage of the population that has a pension. And the biggest issue with a pension is that most don't have a cost of living adjustment. Right. Mm -hmm. And Social Security, it has a cost of living adjustment, but it's typically just enough to offset the cost in the Medicare premium that they get. So then you look at their investments we're like, man, we have to be so safe with this money. And for people that have a Social Security check and a pension check, their investments really become their long term hedge against inflation. Right. Because if they retire today with six thousand dollars a month of income and they live 20 years, arguably that $6,000 of income is probably worth about four in the future, 20 years from today. So their they're spending, spending power is being eroded. So when I think of that, the first thing that comes to mind is the biggest risk is inflation, not keeping up with it, being too conservative. Um, and really the way that we conquer that and kill it and help people get by that is by establishing this financial plan that gives them the optimal asset allocation and gives them a goal, like we've talked about through this whole show, what's the goal that you need to earn to be successful long-term? Yeah, and you will never, you're never going to eliminate risk totally. Um, because even if your money's in cash, you're facing, like we just talked about, inflationary risk. So I think the more important thing and the thing to kind of be cognizant of is how are you managing that risk? Yeah, it goes back to it. People's default option is always conservative because they don't know or aren't educated. And the longer I do this, I'm going on 18 years doing this, that education is the most important thing we do for people. Educate them on why they own things, how they should be invested, how this all works. I think the biggest takeaway in kind of closing this out for me and what we learned from these six billionaires and how we can apply it to everyday investors is, you know, if we set some clear goals, have a plan and execute it, you know, we may not make a billion dollars or be worth a billion dollars, but we're all going to get closer to the goals that we've set forth. Because really without setting a goal, how, how do you accomplish anything? We, we have to have some benchmark and parameters to start to work with people so they have goals for this money so they can make really well-educated, informed decisions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, just to kind of conclude, you know, like you just said, having a plan, executing the plan, um, 
that's going to determine your success far more than uh, any sort of like complicated trading strategy or any hot stock tip. Um, so I guess I just tell listeners, keep it simple, stay focused on the plan. Yeah. And you know what? If somebody out there wants a plan, they can go to the website, btwellshow.com. Uh, there's a request information. There's the ability to just start doing your financial plan right there. Um, once again, btwellshow.com. We're more than happy to help you. Uh, till next time, this is Roger Abel and Elias. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.